So in Luke 1, we see an amazing story unfolding. And in this first chapter, Luke shows us the role that each person will play in this story. So today we're going to look at the role of uh, all the key protagonists that appear uh, in this passage. And in so doing, uh, we'll begin to understand our role in God's story more clearly. This story doesn't end with the birth of Jesus. That's just the beginning. This story doesn't end with the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, or even his going up into heaven, his ascension, uh, which is where Luke ends this uh, volume, the Gospel of of Luke. Uh, Of course, Luke went on to write another volume, uh, the book of Acts, uh, often uh, referred to as the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, I prefer to call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit working through Jesus' followers. Uh, It's not quite so succinct, but uh, perhaps more accurate. But Luke only tells us about one generation. Uh, The book of Acts is a story that continues to this day and will continue until Jesus returns. You see, I want us to appreciate that God's story, as far as human beings are concerned, begins with creation, and it's an ongoing story. Uh, When we read this account in Luke's gospel, we need to understand that we are part of this story, God's story. And everyone uh, in this story has a role to play. So today we're going to be looking at the roles of the Holy Spirit, of uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, Jesus, John the Baptist. And in so doing, our role will become clearer. Firstly, the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets, the last person that God used to speak to his people, Israel, prior to the events that we're reading about today. Uh, After Malachi, God was silent for 400 years. During that time, there were no prophets, uh, no miracles, no supernatural spiritual gifts, no, uh, no tangible sign of the Holy Spirit's activity. But then in Luke 1, we see that God is doing something new. Almost everyone connected with the birth of Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke 1, verse 35, the angel who appeared to Mary told her, the Holy Spirit has come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Mary's pregnancy is a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 41 says this about Mary's relative, Elizabeth. It says, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby in her womb leaped for joy, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In verse 15, Zechariah is told by the angel that his son John will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. And then in verse 67, uh, we see Zechariah himself was filled with the Spirit uh, after the birth of his son. So after 400 years of silence, the Holy Spirit is active in a very real and powerful way. The Holy Spirit is, of course, the third person of the Trinity who is 100% God, just as God the Father and Jesus are 100% God, one God, three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are sometimes referred to as the Godhead. And the Holy Spirit is the person within the Godhead who enacts God's will. We love, worship, and pray to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is God. 
Luke talks about the Holy Spirit more than any of the other gospel writers. And we see that without the power of the Holy Spirit, this story would grind to a halt. Uh, So the first thing for us is that if we want to fulfill our role in God's story, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. The Hebrew word for spirit is ruach, also means breath or wind. And in John 8, uh, during his conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus likens the Holy Spirit to a wind. Well, we want to have our lives directed by the Holy Spirit, but for that to happen, we need to have our sails up, metaphorically speaking. If you imagine your life as a sailing boat, are your sails up so that they can be filled with the wind of the Spirit, or are they down? Are you allowing your life to be directed by the Holy Spirit, or are you just drifting? The wind is always blowing. The Spirit is always at work. Uh, But some Christians take their sails down for all kinds of reasons, through sin or lethargy or false doctrine or disordered priorities or bad life decisions, whatever it might be. We must keep our sails up. We must be open to what the Holy Spirit is wanting to do in us and through us. So the role of the Holy Spirit in this story is to guide, direct, empower, inspire, and enable God's plan to be fulfilled. Without the Holy Spirit, it's a non-starter. Next, we come to the role of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah was a priest, and his wife Elizabeth was pregnant in her old age. Both of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. At the time, that was unusual uh, because the Holy Spirit wasn't poured out on all believers until the day of Pentecost, which came after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. Uh, In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit only comes on those whom God has set aside for particular tasks, for the most part, prophets and kings, uh, the nation's leaders. Well, Zechariah and Elizabeth are set aside for a very special role. They were to raise the forerunner of the Messiah, the one who would prepare the way for Jesus. And John's role was laid out very clearly by the angel who visited Zechariah in the temple. In fact, Zechariah was given quite specific instructions about his future son and how he'd be to be raised. For example, in verse 15, he's never to take wine or other fermented drink. So Zechariah and Elizabeth are this godly, spirit-filled couple, and they have this uh, amazing responsibility of raising the one who would go before the Messiah. Do you think they left any of this to chance? No way. John's parents prepared him to be a witness to Christ, to point people to Jesus, to proclaim salvation through the forgiveness of sins. But there's a sense in which every Christian is called to do these things. And we'll come to that when we look at the role of John the Baptist. But if every Christian is called to point people to Jesus, then surely it must be the responsibility of every Christian parent, grandparent, and carer to prepare their children for this. So how do we do it? Well, the good news is that since the day of Pentecost, every genuine believer is filled with the Holy Spirit. So if we keep our sails up, there's an amazing amount of support and comfort and guidance available to us by the Spirit. Uh, We recently had an infant baptism, little Cecilia, and the promises that were made 
uh, at that baptism indicate how we can prepare our children to be witnesses to Christ. Firstly, we pray for them. We pray for them daily. Uh, My most sincere, persistent, and heartfelt prayer is that my children will walk with Jesus their whole lives. We pray for our children. Secondly, and you'll recognize this from the promises that were made at the baptism. Secondly, we help them take their place in the life and worship of Christ church. Uh, That means bringing our children to church. Sometimes it's the other way around. It's the children that encourage the parents to go to church. But our commitment to the body of Christ speaks volumes to our children. If we're half-hearted, our children will grow up thinking uh, that being part of a Christian community is kind of an optional extra, uh, something that we don't really have to prioritize. Of course, what we do on a Sunday is only one aspect of the life and worship of Christ church. Uh, so, so let's engage in other ways too, especially uh, hanging out with Christian families who share our values, uh, not exclusively, but certainly regularly. Thirdly, we pray with our children. We pray with them, and we teach them how to pray. For our family, and it's, it's different, I think, in every family. For our family, it's in the car on the way to school, uh, and at mealtimes in the evening, and sometimes we have devotions, so we read a few verses from the Bible and, and talk about them, or we try to. It's not always easy. Um, and we pray before bed. We're not as consistent as we'd like to be, But we want to keep making it a priority because praying together as a family is the most basic of Christian disciplines. We can't afford to neglect it. Fourthly, we want to encourage our children to talk freely about faith and ask questions. We won't have perfect answers, uh, but often our children's questions will push us to go a bit deeper and increase our knowledge. But we need to be very intentional about creating opportunities for our children to talk about faith and to talk about real-life issues and the connection between the two. Fifthly, we live out our faith. Another promise from the baptism service, we draw our children by example into the community of faith and walk with them in the way of Christ. We walk with them in the way of Christ. And so our children will begin to ask questions. Why are we preparing a meal for that family? Well, because they've been through a tough time and Jesus told us to be generous. Why are we getting lunch for that homeless person? Well, because they're really in need. And Jesus said, when we feed the hungry, we're actually doing it for him. And so on and so on. And over the course of their lives, our children build up a picture of what it means to follow Christ. We, we, we lead them by example. Zechariah and Elizabeth were filled with the Holy Spirit and given the awesome responsibility of raising a child who would point to Jesus. Well, the parents, the grandparents, the carers, and indeed the the whole of our church, we have that same responsibility. We're not raising the forerunner of the Messiah, but we want to raise children who will point with their lives to the goodness and glory of Jesus Christ. Which brings us to Jesus' role. Uh, The first part of Zechariah's song is all about Jesus and how he will fulfill the role of Savior, uh, Messiah. And when we talk about Jesus as Savior, there are two things that we need to understand. We need to understand what Jesus is saving us from and what Jesus is saving us for. 
Firstly, what is Jesus saving us from? Well, from a first century Jewish perspective, and this would have been Zechariah's perspective, the Messiah would save Israel from her physical enemies, uh, most notably at that point in history, the Roman Empire. Uh, Zechariah's song has a strong uh, nationalistic tone and seems to focus on Israel's physical salvation, uh, which is entirely understandable because up until that point, the most impressive thing that God had done for his people, and it was impressive, was to deliver them from physical slavery in Egypt. This first line of Zechariah's song, it says that God has redeemed his people. Redemption is a term that literally means being brought back, brought back out of slavery. So if you imagine a slave market in the first century, if someone were to pay the asking price for a slave, which was often the amount of debt that they owed, and then free that slave, they would have redeemed them. Roman oppression was seen as another form of slavery from which the Jewish people wanted to be redeemed. They wanted God to redeem them, to buy them back from slavery. And then he says that God has raised a horn of salvation. The horn is seen as belonging to a powerful animal, so it's a symbol of strength. And lifting or exalting a horn denotes an increase in power. Uh, Zechariah goes on to sing about salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Uh, So this sounds a lot like salvation from a physical enemy, which is entirely in line with what any first century Jew would have expected from their Messiah. So that's the first century Jewish perspective. Our perspective is somewhat different because we're looking at this through the lens of Jesus, through his life, his death, his resurrection, through the way that he lived and the things that he taught. We've also got the benefit of the whole of the New Testament. And we know that Jesus did come to save us from our enemies, and the day will come when Jesus will save us from our physical enemies. But for that to happen... Jesus first has to save us from the enemies of sin and death. We are all sinful. In other words, we rebel against God, every last one of us. Uh, The Bible tells us that we are enslaved to sin, which is why the image of Jesus as Redeemer is so uh, appropriate. And even in that last carol we sung, it it spoke of uh, Jesus uh, buying us with his blood. We like to pretend that we're really not that sinful, uh, often by comparing ourselves to others. And it's true, if you compare yourself to Adolf Hitler, you may well feel justified in saying, well, I'm a a pretty good person. Uh, But the standard is not to be less evil than Adolf Hitler or your neighbor or whoever. The standard is God. And we all fall a long way short, as it says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Comparing ourselves to other human beings is a bit like uh, we all go down to Byron Bay, you know, the lighthouse there, Australia's most easterly point, and we have a competition to see who can jump across to New Zealand, who can get the furthest. Uh, Some of us will jump further than others, but none of us are going to get very far. In fact, we'd all just be jumping off a cliff to our death. Uh, If you can jump a metre further than the person next to you, Uh, That's not going to do you a lot of good. We all fall so far short of the glory of God that I'm a good person is a completely meaningless statement. We're sinful, 
and deserving of death. That's eternal separation from God. And we cannot save ourselves any more than we can jump across to New Zealand. In short, we need God to intervene. We need God to save us. Jesus is our savior. Jesus has conquered sin and death on our behalf. I don't want to stretch the analogy too far, but it's almost like Jesus has jumped to New Zealand with us in his arms. He took our sin. He took the sin of the world upon himself. John the Baptist says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All the sin and the muck and the filth was laid on Jesus. He took the punishment that we deserve, death and separation from God. But death couldn't defeat him. The grave couldn't hold him. And on the third day, he rose to new and everlasting life so that in him, we can do the same. That's what salvation means from our perspective. Without Jesus, we are headed for death and hell. We need saving from that. Jesus offers us forgiveness and eternal life. And from our perspective, we know that Jesus offers this life not just to the Jewish people, but to everyone. And Zechariah affirms this uh, in his song. Zechariah tells us that God will remember the oath that he swore to Abraham. Well, we see that oath in Genesis 22, verse 18, where it says, Through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Jesus is the means by which all nations will be blessed because Jesus offers salvation to everyone. Jesus' role is that of saviour. Let us be in no doubt what Jesus is saving us from. The other important question is, what is Jesus saving us for? And the answer to that question can be seen very clearly in the middle of Zechariah's song, where he sings, to enable us to serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So Jesus' role is that of saviour, and our role is to love him and worship him and serve him forever, starting now. So to finish, we're going to look at John's role because he was called to serve Jesus in a very special way, and we see that in the second half of Zechariah's song. John's role was to go before Jesus and prepare the way for him. Uh, This was a unique role, a prophetic role. John's job was to open the eyes of the people and help them to see what God was doing. Uh, John's role was to prepare people's hearts to receive their Messiah, to receive Jesus. Uh, Zechariah sang that John would give God's people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. So this song that started off in a way that any first century Jew would recognize, it sounded quite nationalistic, uh, we now see that there is a different kind of salvation in view. Salvation through the forgiveness of sins. John helped the people to see that their biggest problem was not the Romans, but sin and the consequences of sin, death and separation from God. That's what they needed saving from. John called the people to repent and turn back to God. He prepared a way for the one who would ultimately abolish sin and death. He prepared a way for the one who would make forgiveness possible and provide a way to everlasting life. John proclaimed the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. But you know, and it might seem strange to say this, 
But we have a much clearer vision of the gospel than John did. When John preached, Jesus hadn't yet begun his public ministry. He'd not yet laid out his manifesto of the kingdom. He hadn't been crucified and raised on the third day, and none of the New Testament books had been written. We have this knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins, and we ought to share it individually and collectively as a church. The question is how? Well, Zechariah sang of a light shining on those in darkness and in the shadow of death. Jesus is that light. But didn't Jesus also say, you are the light of the world? We, the church, are the visible presence of Christ in the world. We are that city on a hill providing light for the surrounding area. Our role is to point people to Jesus by being like Jesus. Our role is to make Jesus' invisible kingdom visible. And we do that every time we are generous, when we forgive, when we serve, when we care, when we love, when we bless those who persecute us and love those who hate us. We make Jesus' invisible kingdom visible. That is the role of the church. That is the role of this church. So today we've looked at the role of the key protagonists in this passage. And in so doing, we've seen, albeit in outline, what our role is in God's story. We've seen that the person and work of the Holy Spirit is absolutely central. Our role is to keep our sails up, to be open and receptive to the guidance of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Zechariah and Elizabeth were to raise the one who would go before Jesus, Our role as parents, grandparents, carers, and as a whole church is to raise children who point people to Jesus, who point the world to Jesus. Jesus is our savior. That's his role. Our role is to love him and worship him and serve him forever. And finally, John the Baptist, his role was unique as the forerunner of the Messiah. But there are elements of his role that apply to us. He was to point people to Jesus. We must do the same. We can't train our children to point people to Jesus if we're not pointing people to Jesus. It's uh, by example that we, we, we train them. Uh, John the Baptist was to make Jesus' invisible kingdom visible. We must do that. So what is our role in God's story? to live a spirit-filled and spirit-led life of service that makes Christ known in the world. The purpose of our lives, the purpose of this church, is to live a spirit-filled and spirit-led life of service that makes Christ known in the world. And in our culture, there is no better, easier, or more conducive time to make Christ known than during this season of Advent and Christmas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you so much for Luke's gospel and the, the richness of it and the way that he sets out particularly the, the role of the Messiah, the role of John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, but also in this we see a purpose for us in your great story. 
And we pray, Father, that we will, uh, this season of Advent and Christmas, have our sails up, ready to be filled with the wind of your Spirit, to be guided by you. Lord, we recognize that this is the one time of year when, or Christmas and Easter is a time when, when people who maybe don't normally think about you at all might just have half a thought for you. And we pray that we can be that light on a hill. We pray that uh, we can proclaim the gospel with our words and our actions and the way that we live and the example that we set. Fill us with your spirit and help us to live lives that are pleasing to you this season and always. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.